Hi, I'm Kristen Yorka, and thank you for joining me on the Wild Wonder podcast. Today we had, have celebrated author and inspiring speaker, Alexander John Shia. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, delighted. Good. I love seeing the Christmas tree. Yeah, oh, I did it on purpose. Usually I shoot the other way, but oh, I was like, cool. no, but today we're talking about the 13 days of Christmas, so I need to have my great tree. Go ahead. I'm in Santa Fe, just, and uh, we don't have our tree up yet, but it's been snowing all day. It's like I'm definitely in the spirit. Yeah, in Miami, I have to pretend. So <laughs> we have our tree. I have the scented pine candles all around. Um, so oh, we're making it work. Cool. <laughs> so we, I want to talk mainly about your your latest work, The 13 Days of Christmas. But before I do, I really wanted to learn more about you for those uh, out there that might not be familiar with you and your work. Um, as it says on your website, you're an anthropologist, a psychologist, and a spiritual director who then turned into a highly sought out teacher and author. Was this a planned See, route? <laughs> no, it was not planned. Uh, I, I, um, going back to my days in college, too many decades ago, but when I was there, I had the great honor to be taught by Joseph Campbell. Oh, wow. And the great American mythologist. And he really spun my world. And in some ways, he's still spinning my world. Um, and I, I developed just this great passion for understanding um, the earth wisdoms mm -hmm. and how the earth wisdoms really impact uh, our cognitive thinking in our bodies and et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, but then in the year 2000, I had this moment where this whole body of information arrived and I knew mm -hmm. I had to write it. Incredible. So that makes sense now, because as I read your work, you, unlike other spiritual teachers in the Christian tradition, there's a lot of um, emphasis on archetypes and energies and coming back to the body. Absolutely. Right. And that it really blew my mind because you don't see that often, at least in, in the Christian world. Right. Um, and then I, 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 I mean, very, very sadly, that's true. I wish right. it were not true, but it is greatly true. I'm thinking now about the video you made about um, St. Francis of Assisi and the first nativity. And the, the part that struck me was when you say, no, when he was trying to show people God is here, God is here in the body and all around us. And it took me back to my own childhood, if I may share a short story. It, um, it reminded Ooh. me of when I asked my mom, I must have been nine or 10, I was like, but, but what is God? And I think to get a nine-year-old to like be quiet, she was like, well, God is everything. And I was like, wait, what? God is everything? God is this tree, God is the grass, God is everything. And I felt like that's, that's the spirit that you were trying to convey in that video. And it really validated some of my feelings. So, And what, what Campbell taught me mm -hmm. is, is that there is this one great reality that's going on. And every people, every culture, every era costume it. Mm -hmm. And we end up arguing about the costume and forgetting that the costume is just helping us point to the great reality. Right. I forget who says it, but it's it's similar to, it's not the finger pointing at the moon, it's the moon, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. There's I, know, I know that, that comes out of Buddhism. I'm not sure which teacher. Right. Yeah. Um, which is interesting that you that you ended up here mixing some of the earth religions and the and the Christian faith because from what I read about you, you were set to be possibly um, a priest. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When I was born, mm -hmm. uh, I'm first generation Lebanese. And in the old Lebanese tradition, when a child is born, the father gives you your name. Mm -hmm. And your name has your responsibility to the family. Interesting. And I was given the name Alexander, which going back 14 generations has always been the next priest in the family line. Oh, I had no idea. So growing up, did you feel that was your responsibility? Oh, enormous. Yeah. I mean, it, was, it, it wasn't a, like, you might want to think about this. It's just like, <laughs> this is what you shall do. Mm -hmm. Now, it fit me because I, mm -hmm. I got sort of a psychological, spiritual bent. So it fit for a long time, it fit me uh, until I got to seminary and it didn't, it, the box was too tight. Okay. Well, well, do you remember that time in seminary where you were like, this might not be it? Maybe there's another way? Yes. It, it was almost immediately. Oh. Um, I had come out of this experience at the University of Notre Dame with Joseph Campbell and other phenomenal teachers in this wide, expansive understanding of reality and spirit, etc. Mm -hmm. And I got to seminary and it was, here's the question, here's the answer, dot the I. Mm -hmm. And I just, and I started to have dreams. I started to have nightmares. I don't generally have nightmares. Mm -hmm. And I actually became mildly suicidal. Uh -huh. And I just realized I was, there was some part of me that was being forced to die. Right. Anyway, yeah. I wasn't in seminary very long. <laughs> and what came right after seminary then? Did you have an, an, like a next step or did you, it was a lot of like spiritual soul searching during that time? Uh, so. <laughs> It was total, I mean, because I knew that leaving seminary, that my relationship with my father would end, oh. and it did. Oh. Um, and he was never able to understand why I would not follow his dictate anyway. So yeah, I went through decades of soul searching, trying to find my way. And I, in some ways, it wasn't until 2000 when this whole body of information arrived that I went, oh. Now I could look back over 40 years and understand how, how I was being prepared for that moment. Right. It's one of those things. There was that famous Steve Jobs um, commencement address where he says things only make sense looking back on them. Right. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Which brings and, you. And having had that experience, mm -hmm. I, I now have a lot more patience with myself. It's like, okay, I don't understand, but I know that there's there's a reality here that's working on me. I just if if I just stay with it, eventually I'll I'll get the larger picture. Yeah, and I think that patience comes through in your writing and your work. Um because I was reading it. I hope so. Yeah, I think so because I was reading it. I just a little background on me. I was very, raised kind of oh like I guess that my parents were religiously open so I could choose. Uh, so I chose Catholicism and Buddhism at the same time. Um, and I feel, yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, 
No, I, I, I love that. I mean, those are two of my pillars. Yeah. So reading your work, I didn't feel left out as, as I sometimes do reading some of the more traditional Christian or Catholic texts. I felt like, oh, this is how we combine it, right? Like I, I felt yeah. like this is anyone could probably read this regardless of their faith or their culture and see themselves somewhere in this because there's kind of a universal human truth there. Right. So I okay. just appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it, the, the, because what, what Campbell taught me is, is that all great stories of transformation have four parts to them. Mm -hmm. And that became the answer to why Catholicism or Christianity has four gospel texts, because mm. each text is one of the four parts of the story of transformation. But it's also true about the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. It's exactly right. the same thing. Right. The Four Noble Truths are the four parts in, the, in, in exactly the right sequence. Mm -hmm. And I guess that that is true also of Campbell's um, Hero's Journey. In a way, exactly. right? And it's true in Judaism, and it's true in Navajo, and it's true mm -hmm. in Hopi, and it's and, <laughs> and all, you know, it's it's this. As Campbell would say, there's one great story going on in the universe, mm -hmm. and probably a hundred billion scripts. Right. Now, if we could all just appreciate that <laughs> for a moment, yeah. Well. I was speaking more about the book, The 13 Days of Christmas. Why was this an important book to write now? Oh, the, it, there's, there's a large answer and maybe a smaller answer. Um, for, for my Christian audience, I really want them to reawaken to the earth wisdom. Uh, the entire Christian year is based on earth wisdom. Uh, and the earth wisdoms were used to tell the story of Jesus the Christ. But our tradition, at least I, I am Christian, and mm -hmm. the Christian tradition has forgotten that. And it's, it's built this, this uh, intellectual tower about Jesus and forgot the base it's sitting on. Mm -hmm. So that was that. That's the large reason. The second reason is that I, I want people to come back to the knowing that the darkness is always our place of beginning. Yes. That we are conceived in the dark womb. That the seed is planted into the dark earth. That until almost just until a few hundred years ago, every Madonna was a dark or a black Madonna not because the Madonna was telling about a biological history, but the Madonna is the face of the dark earth, right. our mother. Um, and, and that the entire preparation for Christmas and feast of Christmas is about the darkness is where the new radiance is born. And it's teaching us to go, because you know, I think deep in our DNA from those years, our primate years, we probably have an innate fear or caution about the dark. Yes. But all of our spiritual teachings are, no, 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 
embrace the dark, learn how to go into it, learn how to use it, right. learn how to find the new creativity, the new vitality, the new radiance right there in the place of the dark. You, you so call it that in the was, book. Sorry, you, you, you said uh, you call it in the book um, the womb time or tomb time, and I love that. Like how that experience of returning to a state of, I guess, primordial nothingness, right? Yes. Which, which we don't see often. And for the, and, Go ahead. <laughs> well, for, for the Celts, Christianity met the Celtic world in about the fourth century. Okay. And the Celtic world gave Christianity its entire ancient cycle of the earth. So the Celts called November and December the deepest dark. That mm. was their name for these two months. And that they went into the deepest dark waiting for the new radiance that would come at the winter solstice. That earth reality was the reason that Christianity created the Feast of Christmas. We didn't have a Feast of Christmas before we met the Celtic world. Mm. But but what the Celts were observing in an outer earth-based way, we saw also as an inner spiritual principle. And so the season is to teach us about the holy dark from which new radiance is born. Which is beautiful. I, I thought it was interesting also in the book to how you bring that idea back into the body and using objects such as the great tree, which we'll get into, but also in the nativity scene. I thought that was really novel, how you don't have a baby Jesus. Would you like to share your, your nativity um, ritual with us? Well, it started many years ago, just knowing that the season was about new radiance. Mm -hmm. And for Christians, we can understand that new radiance as Jesus the Christ, but all traditions know about the new radiance that comes out of the dark. So when I set my nativity scene up, which I lovingly do, <laughs> um, I don't put a, a figure of the baby Jesus in the manger. Um, I do one of two things, or I may do both. One is I put a tea light. Or the second thing, and or the second thing is, is that I um, try to discern in this season, what's the new spiritual practice for the coming year for me? Uh, what's the virtue or the quality or the practice that I want to work on? And I'll make a beautiful card and write out my intention. And I put that in the manger and then usually put the tea light on top of it. <laughs> but it really is about that nativity scene is not a, a remembrance of a historical event. It's a remembrance of a present moment reality, which is happening right now in the deep dark. I love that because we, in our culture, I feel like we tend to demonize the dark. And I feel like with these rituals, it, it makes the dark sacred again. Well, I mean, it's not our, our language demonizes the dark. It doesn't have to, but unreflectively, we do. Just think about how, as soon as somebody says a dark emotion, <laughs> you think about all the downside stuff. Yeah. 
um, and, and, and just all the ways that we use dark in our language um, are hurtful to people of dark skin. We don't intend that to be, but it is. Mm -hmm. And when you go back into the English language, the word dark in the English language, the, the synonyms for dark were garbage, stain, wow. um, uh, putrefaction. Uh, and, and then when you understand that light-skinned Europe went to Africa and saw dark-skinned people, that they, they saw them as bearing the sin of Cain. And took all their projections on darkness and cast it out on them. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's pretty deep in us. So, yeah. yeah so, I, I really like to talk a lot about the holy dark. Um, and I realize dark is dark has everything in it, but so does light. Mm-hmm. And we don't tend to think about how detrimental light can be. We all, all tend to think about how light is beneficial. I mean, God, I, I love sunlight. I love a suntan. Right. I love to spend time in the sun. And what's one of the most pernicious cancers we have? Right. Melanoma, the disease of too much light. What's the most dangerous thing on the planet right now? A nuclear holocaust, which is as close to pure light as exists. Mm -hmm. So light has a beneficial side and it has a destructive side. And the same is true for dark. Dark has a beneficial side and it can have a destructive side. Speaking of the light and dark, as a psychologist, could you speak to what happens to our psyches when we focus only on getting to the light or attaining the light or staying in the light? Well, it, I mean, in the psychological languages, we split our psyche, which is never good. Mm -hmm. And so we have, we have the part of ourselves that we're aware of, but we create an inner resistance to growth because we've got all of this stuff that we're not aware of because we're split. So, um, I, I like to, to remember that, uh, we, we really are the children of classical Greek thought. And classical Greek thought split the world into a series of competing opposites. Mm. It talked about how heaven and earth are fighting each other, and your job is to align with heaven. Men and women are fighting each other, and your job is to align with men. Uh, fire and water are aligning each other and your job is to align with fire and on and on and on. Um, that's so far away from the mystical teachings, Jesus the Christ and all the great mystical teachings about how everything belongs in right relationship with each other. Right. So, But we have this legacy from the Greeks which split us into a series of competing opposites where one should win and one should lose. It's a, it's a vision of extreme duality, right? Extreme. And then, so we're and it's, I mean, we see it in, we see it in the patriarchy. We see right. it in racism on and on and on and on. We, we, we see it in, in binary sexuality and yeah. it, it's, it's just, it cuts through everything. 
But we have this, the gift of this moment is coming home to wholeness mm-hmm. and healing ourselves of all these um, dualities which are, which are hurting us. In, in your opinion, how do we step out of this duality? Do we, do we seek to go toward the opposite or are we seeking to get to the middle by letting go of some of our extremes? If that makes sense. Yeah, it, uh, it's a really good question. Um, and there, there's a, a pendulum in us, just mm-hmm. like the energy of the seasons, that will carry us on the journey. But the thing that people don't realize is, is that you can't achieve integration by going to the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, integration means allowing yourself to swing between the opposites, but knowing not to choose the swing, just let it be. Mm. Watch it, be with it, but, and don't force it. And yeah. I, I like to think of, of, um, in, in, you in, uh, uh, the Odyssey, mm-hmm. uh, there's that, that story of Ulysses who is going down the, the, the channel. Mm-hmm. And um, on one side is the Sibyls and on the other side is the Sirens. Right. And he puts, he puts wax in the, in the oarsmen's ears and they lash him to the mast. And he knows that he has to go through this and he has to hear both sides. He has to feel both sides mm-hmm. and, and not to make a choice. And he, 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 he puts the wax in the oarsman's ears so they won't follow his command if he chooses one side over the other. Yeah. And, and I think about that is how we move to integration is by listening to the voice of the all, feeling it all, and yet not acting it out. We don't, we don't begin to act it out until we get to some place of integration. Oh, I hadn't considered that. I, I, cause it, right. And I don't know if it's just me, but in our culture, I almost feel forced to make a decision or take an action or a side, um, almost immediately. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, I like the, uh, the, the, the fifth day of Christmas, um, is the day of the Holy fool. And I, and I love it because the Holy Fool is about reversing your your primary attitudes and opinions and behaviors for a day in a, in a safe way. But can you let yourself play with something which is totally opposite of what you would usually do or usually be or usually think? And that's sort of the same way here of let yourself play and know that there's actually an earth energy that's going to carry you to the place you want to go. But if our ego reaches for middle ground, it does it's not solid enough. Right. We have to let it we have to let it rise up in us rather than try to have our intellect achieve it. It it reminds me um I'm a yoga teacher. It reminds me of in yoga we always Wait. say or or tell our students whatever you're avoiding or whatever is hard or whatever you don't want to do, do that. Do the opposite of what you're thinking you should be doing right now. 
it was right. kind of that similar idea. Right. So when I read the Feast of Fools, I'm like, oh, that's it. And it's funny, I'm reading it. We're not on the Feast of Fools, but I was like, what's my opposite right now? What is the opposite of the thing mm -hmm. I want to do? Um, so I think it's good practice. Um, but you're right. It takes our ego out of it. Um, so often we, st I think what you're describing is that we stay in these ego characters. And then we make decisions from this place of this archetype we've created for ourselves. Like this version, this version of Kristen would do this. So you're you're asking during the Feast of Fools to remove this archetype you've created and just go. Yeah, yeah the whole thirteen days of Christmas is about what would it be like to live yourself as a mystery, mm. which is sort of the antidote to what our culture teaches us is to have certitude. Right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting practice. And I wonder, as I was reading it, a lot of these um, feasts and rituals and, and prayers and activities are meant to be done in community. Um, but we're in a pandemic. So I was like, so I was thinking, what would this look like if maybe you're home and you can't be around people? Or what would this look like if you can be around people, but in a safe way. Um, how would these be practiced now in the in the state that we're in? Well, I mean, I've got a whole bunch of possible ideas. Mm -hmm. And um, just to say at this point that the 13 Days of Christmas is a provisional PDF. Mm -hmm. And after I receive people's thoughts and comments, I'm going to rework it and release the formal book next next autumn. Right. But I'm thinking right now about um, if you're so inclined, uh, doing artwork, uh, doing mandalas, uh, sitting with a tray of sand or sitting with a piece of earth and just working it. Uh, and or I'm looking to add a great movie or two to each one of the days of Christmas as a way to live the story forward. Mm -hmm. um, and then whether I'm dialoguing with myself or I'm dialoguing with one other person or with my journal. Um, but in some ways, uh, don't let the idea just sit in here. Take mm -hmm. it out into your body. And, it, and I'd be really interested to know, and maybe this is something that we could further explore about, mm -hmm. are there yoga postures that could go with each day of the 13 days? Yes. Yes. I believe there are. Um, because if we even think of it, because what we haven't discussed and which I really appreciated about your work is that you brought back into the story, the divine feminine and e even, the, even using the word divine feminine, divine masculine in what's essentially a Christian book. I was like, you know, like, when do you ever see that? Never. Um, but even looking at it from that perspective, because you give each feast day, a, an, a divine energy of the divine masculine or divine feminine, if we think of it just in that way, absolutely there could be a yoga posture associated with it. Um, there's, Or if we even think of it as the divine energies plus the chakra system in, and incorporate it with the feast, yes, absolutely. Yeah. 
So just because people may not know where the idea of the 13 days comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it comes from the Celts. The Celts had a 13-day festival in honor of the winter solstice, which is about, the winter solstice is about birth. Mm -hmm. The summer solstice is about death. The winter solstice is about birth. And um, and their face of birth was the goddess. And 13 is the number that's sacred to the goddess. So therefore, a 13-day festival. Well, Christianity took the festival, added a Christian story to each one of the days. And then I don't know whether Christianity was, was embarrassed by the connection to the goddess or not. But Christianity started with Christmas Day is... Christmas Day, followed by the 12 days of Christmas. Hmm. So it continues to be a 13-day festival, but we don't think of it that way. Right. <laughs> I mean, even, even last night, I was, I was watching a movie about the 12 days of Tudor Christmas, uh -huh. and, and they, didn't know how to, they didn't know how to count the days. <laughs> because about halfway through the movie, they realized, whoops, we've got 13 days here, but we're calling them 12. <laughs> It's it's funny. It seems really obvious, but until I was reading it, I was like, "Yeah, thirteen. There's thirteen days, including Christmas." Right. <laughs> Which leads us and up. You're right. And each day, and each day is about the energy or the mystery of birth. Mm -hmm. And so the whole festival is teaching us about what it takes to birth this deeper radiance inside of us. And in the Christian metaphor, I can say the life of Jesus the Christ inside of us. Mm -hmm. But but the metaphor is is universal. It it was refreshing that I always felt, even as a child, like why isn't Mother Mary at the center of this celebration? <laughs> like she birthed the child, you know. But it, it felt like we just forgot about the birthing part and just celebrated the child. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and yeah, it brings us back. And, and what, and, you know, what, what I don't fully explain yet in the, in this provisional text, but I will in the, in the book is for the Celts, they believe that, that, um, we had to practice generativity to help the sun be reborn. Hmm. And so actually, they, they, some of their rituals were men and women engaging in sexual activity and pouring bodily fluids into the earth rather than into each other. Oh, I, that part I didn't know. And that that is captured in the carol, the 12 Days of Christmas carol. Oh. Because... The central image there is the partridge and the pear tree. Right. Well, the partridge in the Celtic oh. mythology stands for the phallus and the mm -hmm. masculine principle. And the pear tree, it was the sacred tree of the goddess. Okay. And the pear was seen as the image of the vulva. And so you have the partridge bringing the seed to the vulva. It's the, the center image of the whole carol, which in, which in beautiful symbology talks right. about this ancient ritual that the Celts are engaging in about male and female. Huh. That's wild. No, it, now I see it. I wasn't seeing it before. <laughs> yeah.
but yeah. Yeah. Who who were these um early if you don't mind describing who were these early Christians that encountered the Celts? Do we know? We we don't we don't have a name for them, mm-hmm. but we know that for the first few centuries Christianity stayed in the Mediterranean basin. Okay. And in the Mediterranean basin, the sun is not very dramatic, and so we continued our moon calendar along with Judaism and eventually Islam as well. Um, but when we moved north of the Alps, mm-hmm. we met the Celtic world. The Celtic world goes from Ireland to Turkey in these days. Right. Enormous. And and their calendar was a sun calendar. And they couldn't understand a moon religion. Mm. And so we we did we did what Christianity does when it's in its best self. We said, tell us what you are observing. Tell us what you believe. Mm. And we went, oh, we know that story. We, we know we know the story of radiance right. born in the dark, right? And so we create a feast of Christmas, which we'd never had before, That's because we don't know what day of the year Jesus was born, right? But we know the spiritual reality of new grace happening us in the dark season. Yeah. And then, so these early Christians then find these Celts and they experience their their festival around this great tree, right? Um, Which to the Celts, if if I'm correct, it's the underworld, the upper world, and the middle world. Is that right? Yeah. And then, so how did the great tree... And the... the the first great tree for the Celts was the oak tree. Mm-hmm. And then the oak trees were cut, the oak forests of Europe were cut down. And so then the great tree became the fir or the evergreen. So when- but both the fir, both the oak and the evergreen are considered the world axis, which hold, its roots hold the underworld its trunk holds this world and its upper branches hold the upper world. And so it becomes that integration of all three worlds. Which is common, I think, to a lot of ancient religions, correct? It's not just yes. Celts. Yes. There seems to be yes. symbology about the great tree in, I would say, almost mm-hmm. all, if I'm not wrong, right? Yeah. So it wouldn't yeah. I mean, have been... It, it's a, Go ahead. Well, you know, I, that that the, the whole idea of knocking on wood mm. comes from the Celtic world. Oh. And because they believe that the life force is in the wood of the tree. And so knocking on wood is the same thing for me as Lebanese saying, inshallah, if God wills. It's mm. bowing, knocking on the on the wood is bowing to the spirit world. It's like, Yes, I have my desire, but I knock on wood so that the spirit world might also agree or confirm. So it's different than just like superstition and luck. It would be yeah. similar in my family. We say, si Dios quiere, like if God wills it, right? See, si. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and go. I love that, yeah, it, 
for centuries, Christmas and the winter solstice were the same day. Mm -hmm. um, and the day before the solstice, the Celts were decorating the barren oak tree because they thought of the winter solstice as the oak tree's birthday. That, they, they thought of the oak tree mm -hmm. as being born or born again on the winter solstice. Oh. And so they wanted to decorate it. And what they would do is they would put apples and pears and persimmons and other fruit they would hang in the barren limbs of the oak. Well, we, the Christians, saw them doing that. And they went, oh, we know this. <laughs> this is the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Oh. And, and in the birth, and in the and in the birth of Jesus, the Garden of Eden is open to everyone. So this is where the idea in Christianity came from of decorating the tree, and what started out with fruits and and you know dried fruits and fresh fruits mm -hmm. now have become these beautiful glass ornaments and all manner of of things that we put in the tree, but. Right. It truly, the wonder and the awe of the decorated tree brings back the oneness of all people. That that we are gathered together with spirit in wonder and awe. I, I love that idea. It's almost, I always think of it as a, like a large banquet table where everyone's invited. It's like a yeah. reopening of your heart and home. Um, which I, I don't know if it's connected, but still in Southern Italy, they um, still decorate trees and wreaths and garlands with fruit. So still that's that tradition still around. <laughs> yeah. It's, and, and Christians made, made December the 24th, the day that in, in olden days, the day that the tree was decorated. They made it the Feast of Adam and Eve. Oh. That I didn't know. So it would be because in the book you do say that Eve means like evening. So technically Christmas Eve is the night before. So that's when the festival so, of Advent. I mean, so yeah, I mean we've we've changed the meaning of the name Eve to the day before, but actually it's shorthand for evening. Hmm. And the arrival of darkness or the arrival of evening spiritually is always the beginning. And so in Christian language, Christmas evening is what happens after sunset on December the 24th. We start with Christmas evening and Christmas evening moves to Christmas morning. Now, which, this which presents, we, I mean. Yeah, which we Hispanic Americans celebrate Christmas Eve. Um, which usually, I mean, if we do, if we're doing it properly, it would start closer to midnight on the day before. Um, yeah. That's, so going back a second, so we have these early Christians and we have the Celts and they start to kind of combine their rituals. D did the Celts also take on these Christian rituals? Or did it only flow kind of one way? Well, now, I mean, nothing is simplistic and, and uniform. Right. But a great deal of the Celtic world became Christian. Mm. And people, people have this idea that Christianity destroyed the Celtic world. I, I don't see it that way. 
when Christianity met the Celtic world, the Celtic world was involved in very fierce, detrimental tribal warfare. Mm-hmm. Even though they were bound by this culture, the nationalities of all the tri- of all the Celtic tribes, they were killing each other, to put it plainly. And Christianity gave them a way to harmonize mm-hmm. their their culture. And they gave us a whole new way to ritualize our experience of God. So it was this beautiful exchange. Now, a few centuries later, uh, some very ugly, detrimental stuff began to happen. But that's not how it all began. Right. So up until that point, up until meeting the Celts, was it was Christianity more of like a cognitive exercise or... Uh, I don't know how to phrase it, but more of no, a. We, Go ahead. We were a moon cycle. We 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 followed all of our Jewish okay. mothers' moon feasts. The only thing that we added to uh, our tradition that was different from our Jewish tradition was the feast of Sunday. Um, and we made Sunday the eighth day of the week, which we made Sunday this the last day of the week and the first day of the week simultaneously. <laughs> so it's this this Alpha Omega day, which is different than the seven days of the Jewish cycle. But that's the only thing. And every Sunday was Easter. We didn't even have a springtime Easter. Every Sunday was Easter. Wow. And that was the only thing that we added to our Judaism until we met the Celtic world. Wow. And then the, the Celts, um... You could tell me if I if this is correct. They they started this um, going into darkness or this um, dark period with Samhain or what we now know as Halloween. So it would have been the so, end of October, November, um, with the dying yeah. of the sun and then cruising into this um, the darkest night. Right. So and we had we had continued our Jewish calendar. And- which was a new year, much like Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, which is probably in September. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a great change for us to simply move the new year to this moment, Samhain, that the Celts were celebrating. And the Celts were celebrating 72 hours, three days, which they saw as neither part of the old year nor part of the new year. They were It was the thin days that lived outside of time. And so we took that in, we Christians took that into itself and and crafted the Feast of All Saints and All Souls, mm. which, which were also the celebrations of all time. And for some reason, we only think about our ancestors, but those three days were also to think about the future. They were, they were to think about our descendants and what we needed to do for our descendants. It was... It was this whole sense of what our ancestors had given us for us to hold to pass on to our descendants. So it's really about legacy, about what we've come into the world with and then what we're going to leave the world with. And in a way, it kind of solves the duality problem because we're neither here nor there. We're everywhere and nowhere during these three days. Yeah, it's, it's very much about the all and the now. Mm-hmm. 
And including the, the eighth day is kind of a, a non-day. It's, it's alpha and omega, meaning it's, it's both and, and neither. Right. So, and, and it's always teaching us that time is a circle. So that arriving at omega just simply means going right back to alpha. Because the Greeks gave us this sense of alpha to omega as if time is a line. Mm -hmm. Now, it's it's really a circle, and the circle is really about an eternal present. Right. And that's what I, I saw in your book, too, because it's not only the 13 days of Christmas. If You you could also read it that it takes us through the whole year, right? And, and through the life, death, life cycle, and back again. That's right. Beginning with that's this, right. the darkest night. This, And, and it was interesting because you said... Right. Um, it wasn't a time where we're just like sitting in hope, right? It's where we're sitting in kind of a, a knowing space. Is that right? Yeah. And I, this is really, I, um, I try, I, I don't want to sound harsh or judgmental, mm -hmm. but um, at, spiritual tradition is about a deep trust and a knowing. Um, hope is a developmental virtue on the way to knowing. <laughs> so the dark season for Christians, we're waiting for the new radiance, mm -hmm. but we're not hoping for it. The spiritual truth of it is we know that there will be new radiance. We know that. We don't know when. We don't know how. We <laughs> don't know when. But we're not sitting here hoping that it's going to happen sometime. Mm -hmm. So we're we're waiting in the reality that in spirit's time it will happen. Well, and to me, I think that this is such a deep message for this moment on the planet, because I think for many of us we think of this as a dark moment mm -hmm. culturally. Think of it as a dark moment, which means it's a beginning moment, which means that spirit is with us mm -hmm. and that each one of us has a small piece of work to do. But if each one of us does the small piece of work that spirit has given us to do, the radiance is going to arrive. The new age is going to happen. I don't know when. <laughs> and as Ill illogically as it seems like at this moment, I'm putting my trust in spirit. That's, that's I think what I'm, I'm listening that made me feel hopeful um, is that it lets you, it allows you to let go of the how and just focus on the knowing. Because I think even, well, I'll speak for myself in my own spiritual work, even on my best days, I'm like, yes, it's going to happen, but it's going to happen like this and like this and like this. You know, so you're kind of trying to manipulate and control the outcome, which is, which is not faith or knowing, it's anxiety. <laughs> so I think there, there's some grace there to be able to, to focus on just the knowing and not how and when it's going to happen. And, 
and it, I mean, there's a tension there because it's not just I'm going to sit back and wait for it to happen. It's like I have work to do. And one of the things that I'm trying to help people today understand is decide what are the people and the causes and the services that are on your heart to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, my inbox is blasted with requests right now. <laughs> and they're all good. I understand that they're all good. I can't do all that. Right. I I have really I have discerned for myself what are the what are the causes and the people that I can really give my time and talent to. And every one of those others is I hit the delete button, I offer a prayer that somebody responds to that. But I know that I cannot exhaust myself. That's not going to help the world. Right. It's a, it's a hard lesson for a lot of us to learn. Um, it is very hard. <laughs> we want to do all the things. We see all the work to be done. But maybe it's not our spiritual Absolutely. thing to do all of the things. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. It's, it's a really hard lesson, but spiritual work, should ultimately be joyful and in some ways a sense of play. Mm -hmm. And when I begin to get cynical and filled with anxiety and exhaustion, I've overextended in some way. And I need to bring myself back and be filled up again and offer what I have from that place of being full, not empty. Yeah, and I think rituals like these help um, because we're being intentional in our, in our breaks, you know, it helps prevent that exhaustion, that anxiety, that need to try to do all. And if we're able to like hit the brakes and be intentional and mindful about what we're actually here to do, maybe we'll all be better at doing the thing we're supposed to be doing out in the world. And so. trust your knowing. Yeah. Trust your knowing. I, I heard from so many people this year in November who were feeling guilty because they started putting up lights like the second week of November. No, it's like there's no rule about November Thanksgiving or whatever. It's like the dark season is about looking for the radiance. And if putting up lights in the dark season, whatever it is, rest into that. Yeah, I, I what in 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 this time of COVID, we all need some wonder and joy. Oh yes, and we need to find it wherever we can. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think it was the day after Thanksgiving that all of a sudden I was like, "We need a tree," and my husband's like, "Why do we need a tree right now?" I was like, "We need a tree right now." Yeah. <laughs> and then I, yeah. I I brought the tree home. I played Christmas carols. I baked. I was like, "It has to be today. <laughs> we need this today." Um, so I was Absolutely. happy. I was happy to see in your book that you gave people permission to to do these rituals whenever felt right for them, um, because that's that can also cause some anxiety. Being like, I have to do all these rituals on such and such date and in this way. <laughs> yeah. 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 Life has got too many rules. Mm -hmm. We don't need to add one more about how we're going to experience wonder and joy. 
Oh, yes. Amen to that. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Um, well, we've spoken for a long time, and I don't want to take up your entire day. Um, but I would love to know what you're most excited about right now, what you're most excited to share. Um, I Honestly, because we just released the, the 13 Days of Christmas, the PDF, mm -hmm. uh, I am overjoyed at the comments and the, the emails and the Facebook messages that I'm getting back about about this work. So if I can add an inch or an ounce of joy and wonder to this season of COVID, gosh. Yeah. Um, I'm also, I'm, I'm at, I'm sort of, uh, I'm in the, the wash of having finished this huge project and mm -hmm. we're gonna close the Quadratus office for a couple of weeks and not oh, wow. reopen again until the 6th of January. So I'm, I'm looking to, for some, creative downtime. Oh, good. <laughs> I think I need that too. Um, so hopefully, um, but you have so many things out in the world that even though you're on break, I think we could still enjoy um, a lot of your work. Um, I think your other book, Heart and Soul, um, could lead us through this journey too. Um, and then they could find you. No, all we've got, we've, yeah. Please go to my website. We've mm -hmm. just released an entirely new website and it's Quadratus. That's Q U A D, quad for four. Mm -hmm. Q U A D R A T O S dot com. There's just a whole bunch of material there and, and lots of stuff to, to experience, read through, enjoy. And, and I want to repeat that I think it's, it's, valuable for all um traditions and cultures um i don't think it's specific i mean obviously you're speaking to a christian crowd but um i think it's valuable for oh, no. as well i know i mean I, very much um my hope is that i'm continuing the work of joseph campbell um and yes i've redefined the christian gospels in terms of the four paths of transformation but what's deepest about all my professional work is teaching people the universal path of transformation that's open to every person on the planet. I agree. I thank you so find, much. Find the metaphor, find the metaphor that mm -hmm. opens your heart right. and then go. Right. Agreed. And the oh, Kristen, this has been one. Yes, I loved it. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're busy and you're preparing um, for break. <laughs> but I really do appreciate it. I think um, many people are going to find this inspirational and, and eye-opening. Thank you. And I wish everyone a merry 13 days of Christmas. Yes, me too. <laughs> and merry Christmas, Take care. Alexandra John. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.